Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Today, I'm going to cover Theogony and Works and Days by Hesiod. This is book 32 from my 2023 reading list. Well, these are actually two different titles. So the first is Theogony, and then the second is Works and Days. They are usually paired together because they're they're short, and they are both by Hesiod. And you can read through them in a couple of hours, both both together. And that's what I did the first time. So I just I skipped the introduction. I went straight to Theogony and just started on page one and read through all the way to the end of Works and Days. Then I went back and I read the introduction. And then I read through these two works again, and I went super slow the second time around. And that that read through probably took five hours or more just to, to get through them. And I, it's amazing how, how much I missed on that first read. I mean, part of just that first read is is getting a, a feel for the style and, and all that. Uh, but it's amazing how much I missed and how much I, I gathered on the, on the second reading. So I, I'm actually in the middle of reading Herodotus's histories. And what I try to do is read the books in, in order and just get through the whole thing before moving on to the next book. But when I was in book two of nine for Herodotus's histories, I came across a mention of Hesiod as well as Homer. And it made me want to go ahead and read this book. So what I did is I took a break from Herodotus, and I think I'm going to do that the rest of the time in the sense of uh, after having finished Theogony and Works and Days, now I'm going back to book three in Herodotus. And then after book three, I'm going to take another break and read uh, another book and then go back into book four and all that. And so... um, but I, I I came across this mention in Herodotus. So first, in the introduction of the books I'm covering today, I just want to read one part. So uh, the the translator and the person who wrote the introduction. M.L. West said this, Later in the 5th century, the historian Herodotus says outright, It was these who constructed a divine genealogy for the Greeks and who gave the gods their titles, allocated their powers and privileges to them, and indicated their forms. End quote. So this is, he's speaking about Homer and Hesiod and, and saying that, that Herodotus makes the statement that it was these two people, Hesiod and Homer, who constructed a divine genealogy for the Greeks. And, and, and so here's the part in Herodotus itself in book two that I came across that made me want to just jump right ahead to, to Hesiod here. But the origin of each of the gods, or whether they always existed and what they look like, all of this was unknown until just recently, only yesterday, so to speak. For I believe that Hesiod and Homer were contemporaries who lived no more than 400 years before my time. These were the poets who composed for the for the Helen, uh, for the Hellenes, the theogony assigned to the gods their epithets, defined their particular honors and skills, and described what they looked like. End quote. Uh, it, there's actually a footnote here that says Herodotus had the dates off by 200 years, so these two authors were 200 years before Herodotus's time. So uh, that's um, 
but that's where, where the mention was. And I was just coming across all these names of gods in Herodotus to where I just thought, you know, I need to actually read a book that describes some of these gods. So I'm not, I'm not so lost that so I have a better idea of, of who these gods are when I'm reading Herodotus. And then, and then later on when I start reading Homer and, and a number of the other Greek uh, authors here for, for this great books project. So here is one other thing that, that came up in, in really, was the the final straw to me to me where I like I, I, I realized I needed to, to learn more about these these Greek gods and this this comes just a little bit later in book two of Herodotus and here is what he says they say Apollo and Artemis are the children of Dion, Dionysus and Isis and that Leto became their nurse and savior Apollo in Egyptian is Horus Demeter is Isis and Artemis is Bubastis end quote. Now, this tied things together for me. So now I'm, 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 I come across the fact that the, some of the Greek gods are also gods in Egypt. They just have different names. So now it becomes apparent to me that I really need to know who these gods are because I'm going to see them in multiple places as I'm reading different books and that sort of thing. So hence, that's the reason, sorry for the, the, the kind of long-winded intro here, but this is why I jumped to, to this book, Theogony, and works in days a little earlier than than would be in most of the chronological lists of of great books. But I'm really glad I did so because it provided an excellent just basis for for what I'm going to be coming across in in a number of these other works, including Herodotus's histories. So uh, what's funny is that I I did jump ahead to histories. Uh, the, the version of the Iliad that I want to read is not coming out. The translation is not coming out until next month. So I jumped ahead to Herodotus. And, and then now I'm, I'm jumping ahead to another book in chronological order, but it's, it's actually a book that kind of goes back to the back further into the origins of the gods. So there's, there's this kind of big mix here of, of, uh, chronological order of, of things, but, uh, it, it does make sense. And, and I state all this because this reading, this work, Theogony of the genealogy of the gods is it is very helpful and, and I would suggest doing it perhaps before you read some of the other major Greek works. Now these two works by Hesiod are described in the following manner by the translator of this version that I read by by uh, M. L. West here, and he, he says Theogony is the genealogy of gods from the beginning, and then Works and Days is the moral and practical instruction for a life of. Uh, honest husbandry and so uh, farming not uh, not being a husband but but uh, of of farming uh, the way i define these two books is, is as follows so theogony is is uh it's it's the genealogy of the gods but but it's like the begats of of the gods and if you're familiar with um I believe it's the King James version of the Bible, and, and especially like in Matthew, the book of Matthew, or the Gospel of Matthew, where at the very beginning, it's just this person begat this person, and, and so that person was the father of this person, and that person begat that person, and so they call it Matthew's begats. I, I consider theogony the, uh, the begats of the gods, so the, the gods begats, um, and, and it was kind of just fun to to consider the two begats in that sense of you've got Matthew's begats in the gospel of Matthew, and then you've got the begats of the gods. Um, uh, it, it was kind of a, a fun uh, intellectual 
idea, I guess, just to, to, to consider the, the difference between those two, because Matthew's begats are, are, are humans. And, and then, um, the begats of the gods are, are these gods. So which came, which God came from which God is, is basically what you're dealing with here in theogony. And there are 300 names of gods in this book. So it covers, it covers a lot. And, uh, in, in, as I get, I'll get into in the next segment, it, it covers a lot of, different types of, of gods and, and categories of, of gods, if you will. The, the second work, uh, Works and Days, is more, it has, it has the fe- feeling of wisdom literature, and uh, it, it reminded me a lot of, of, of the book of Proverbs in the Bible. So you, there, you, you get a lot of that kind of thing, and even some very similar statements to what, what, what you would find in Proverbs. There, are, there is a little bit of overlap between the two books, and and I'll highlight that later in this episode, especially in the area of women. Uh, you you see the the creation of women and the reason for the creation of women uh, in in both of these works. But uh, even though they're kind of different, in in one is is about the gods, and then the other one is about uh, kind of kind of wisdom literature. There there is some some overlap. The the author is Hesiod, and and he wrote this probably around 700 BC. So he was a contemporary of Homer, and the translator of this book, M. L. West, he in the introduction he actually he makes the statement that he thinks, and this is just his his personal opinion, but he thinks that this work would have been written before Homer. Uh, most of the other places you look there, they'll say that Homer. Uh, wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey before this work, um, but but the translator thinks that it may have perhaps been the other way around, which is interesting because uh, Hesiod here references stories that you find in the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, but they they were they 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 would these would have been stories that would have been told at that time, so it's not like he would have you know, gone to Barnes and Barnes and Noble and gotten uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and read it. And then be like, Oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to include some of this in my book. Uh, this would have been in the cultural atmosphere. And, and um, so just kind of neat, neat to think of the version I read is the Oxford world's classics. And the other versions I've seen are penguin classics and the Loeb versions. And the, so the Loeb ones, the, those are those green books. And uh, if they're Greek, they're green. If they're re- if they're Latin, they're in red. But the, uh, the that Loeb version would have Greek on one page and then English on on the other. And it it I I, I thought about getting it just to to see what the Greek look looks like uh, for for this because it it is a poem, and it's written in obviously in Greek, but it, it's one of the first works in Greek. And, and again, him being a contemporary of, of Homer, these, his and Homer's works were, were some of the first. And the time period coincided with the arrival of writing, the, the existence of writing, and they were composed in hexameter meter, Ionian dialect, and formulaic diction. And I have no idea what any of those things mean, but I'm sure some of you do. But the point here is that they are the same as what Homer used in Iliad and the Odyssey. And so even with my butchering of, of saying those, uh, just, just know that they're the same of how Homer wrote. So I'm going to divide this this episode up into four total segments. So we just had the first one of, of kind of the introduction. Segment two, I'll cover theogony. Segment three, works and days. And then segment four, my one thing, my one key takeaway from, uh, th- from theogony and works and days. 
So the way I want to start each of these two segments here about these works is to read a paragraph of each work, just so you get a feel for what this is like, what uh, the writing is like. And then uh, these these are like the two paragraphs that I thought were the most beautiful. And just it, they, all, they also really capture a lot of what's going on in these works. So the, the first one I'm going to read here is about uh, water. These were the eldest daughters born of Oceanus and Tethys, but there are are many others too, for there are 3,000 graceful ankled Oceaneids. Widely scattered, they haunt the earth in the depths of the waters everywhere alike, shining goddess children. And there are as many again of the rivers that flow with splashing sound, sons of Oceanus that Lady Tethys bore. It is hard for a mortal man to tell the names of them all, but each of the those peoples know them that live near them. End quote. I, I love this because it capture, captures a lot of neat ideas and, and a lot of things that you see in theogony. The first is that these gods are these are gods of personified things. And they have offspring. So in this particular case, Oceanus and Tethys, they have 3,000 off- offspring. And they're the rivers and the waterways of the world. So the rivers are personified as gods. And they're children of other gods. And so there's this, this huge family tree of gods, but it, it's of personified things. And, and I love this part where it says that no one knows all their names because these are all the rivers of the, of the world and the, the waterways of the world. No one knows all their names. But each of these peoples knows them that live near them, so they know they know the they know their local rivers, and and we know that you know we know the the rivers that are by by us. It, we'd be hard pressed to name uh, any other rivers in the world other than the, other than the major ones. And so I, I just love like a lot going on there, and a, a good kind of overview of, of what we see in the the, the work called Theogony. So uh, to start off Theogony, Hesiod, who is the author, he is, he, we, we find out that he is a shepherd and the muses are teaching him a song at the beginning of Theogony. So this is the song. The, 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 the resulting work here is, is poetry and it's what the muses have taught him. And, and he inserts himself into this work. So we learn later on in, in Works and Days uh, that that is a work where he's telling his brother, who is kind of a slacker, he's, he's telling his brother these things of, of how, how he, he could be more productive and, and things like that and, and, and some, giving him some wisdom. And this, I, I mentioned this because this is unlike Homer. Homer does not insert himself into the Iliad or the Odyssey, but in this case, Hesiod does in, in these two, in, well, in, in, yeah, the first one, because he tells us he's a shepherd. And then the second one, we, we find out about his father and, and, and then there's a lot about his brother. So theogony, as I mentioned before, there are 300 gods here. Uh, uh, there, it it, it kind of categorizes them in 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 many different sections. So you'll have components of the physical universe. So gods that are called heaven, earth, and the sea. There are personified abstractions. So things like death, sleep, deceit, strife, and victory. And you notice how I said things because in my mind these are things, but they are personified in this book. So these are gods. There's there's the god death. There's the god sleep. There's the god deceit, strife, victory. Uh, there there's fighting amongst these gods. There are titans. There are giants, and there are young gods who defeat the titans. There are nine muses, three graces, Achilles, Hercules. 
Prometheus, Atlas, Achilles, Pandora, Kronos, and his son Zeus. And what's amazing is how inundated our culture is with these names. As I as I was reading through Theogony, it just I mean this is a crazy example, but just think of how many of these gods are now company names. And how many characters that show up in our our modern fantasy movies and shows? I mean, you, you, we just see these names, we hear these names all the time. I can picture works of art of these gods. So Botticelli's Graces in Florence. Uh, I'm sure you've you've seen the, the the statue of Atlas in in New York City, or you've seen a, a picture of that. We are confronted constantly with these names with artwork of these gods. And this is is one of the books of the genealogy, or this this is where we first hear of them, where they're, where they're written down. Uh, let me highlight just a few of the, the gods here, and then uh, I will talk about women. So the first is the god Eros, and that is Eros, the, the god of, of, of passionate love. And I thought the description here was just amazing. So here we go. Eros, the most handsome among the immortal gods, dissolver of flesh, who overcomes the reason and purpose in the breasts of all gods and all men. End quote. <laughs> so Eros, that, that, uh, that passionate love that overcomes the reason and purpose in the breasts of all gods and all men. Overcomes the reason and purpose. I, I thought it was just a brilliant, brilliant uh, description. Next up, there is uh, this the, the fearful serpent that guards the golden apples in a hidden region of the dark earth. I just, I, I, it made me wonder if the, if this was a connection somehow to to Eden and, and the story that is that we find in Genesis of of the garden and the. The serpent and the, the apples, if, if there's some sort of a connection here. And it just kind of brought the, the larger question in my mind of, uh, did, did the biblical authors know this work? Did they reference this work? Were they writing to this work in the sense of, here are some myths this this is a different way of looking at it. It just, I, you know, with some of these great books that that were written before the 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 Bible uh, or, or different books of the Bible, I, I just kind of wonder the whole time. Like when I see similarities or or, or similar turns of phrase, I just kind of I, I just kind of wonder like, were they had they read that? Had they not? Were they referencing that? It's just kind of a fun fun to think thing to think about. And I'm sure there's more information out there. Uh, I hope to l- dig into that at some point. Now, let me talk about women because this is a, a good bridge between theogony and then works and days because women are mentioned in both. So first off, we have the story of Prometheus and Prometheus stole fire and gave it to man, mankind. And Zeus was not happy with this. Uh, Zeus did not want uh, mankind to have fire. And so, so this is what, um, what the translator says in the introduction. He says, Zeus decided to contrive a punishment for mankind from which there would be no escape. And so we have women. That, that is the quote uh, uh, in, the, in the section. So let me read now from Theogony. For from her is descended the female sex, a great affliction to mortals as they dwell with their husbands. 
end quote. And so you're not getting a very uh, good picture of why women were created. So it, so it seems right now that it, they were created as a punishment. So let's keep reading. Let's see what else is said here. So now that was that was in Theogony. Now let's jump over to works in days. And we we find this. So uh, Prometheus, clever above all others, you are pleased at having stolen fire and outwitted me. This is Zeus talking. A great calamity for both you, for, for both yourself and for men to come to set against the fire. I shall give them an affliction in which they will all delight as they embrace their own misfortune. End quote. Just a brilliant turn of phrase there to set against fire, to set against the fire. I will give them an affliction. So women are the affliction, which they will all delight as they embrace their own misfortune. So as the men embrace the women, as they embrace their wives, they're embracing their misfortune. They're embracing their infliction, uh, uh, their affliction. Now we go on to the, the, the first woman, the, the first created woman, and this is Pandora. And we, so now we learn about Pandora's box. No, we don't. No, we don't. It's not a box. It is a jar. So if you've heard Pandora's box, that's incorrect. It's Pandora's jar. And we find out later why, uh, where that error uh, started changing from people saying box to jar, but it is a jar. And so what we find out with Pandora is this, but the woman Pandora unstopped the jar and let it all out and brought grim cares upon mankind. Now here's some of the grim things of, uh, that, that came out of that jar sickness, Sicknesses visit men by day and others by night, uninvited, bringing ill to mortals silently because Zeus the resourceful deprived them of voice. There is, thus, there is no way to evade the purpose of Zeus. Countless troubles roam among men, full of ills is the earth and full the sea. So these are, end quote, these are the things that come out of, out of, out of this jar. So uh, let's jump back to the, the um, introduction here. And let's learn a little bit more about this. To explain why work is man's lot, Hesiod retells a modified form, the story of Prometheus and the God's creation of the first woman. In this version, the woman is identified by name as Pandora. And instead of simply being mankind's punishment in her own person, as the ancestress of all mortal women, she here releases all ills into the world by opening a jar in which they had been confined. Hesiod had in mind the typical Greek storage jar, a clay vessel a meter or more high. It was a confusion by Erasmus that made it into Pandora's box, end quote. Again, this is coming in the introduction, so a modern modern time introduction here. But uh, what he's saying is it, it was not the... It was not the the woman in her person. Let me read one more quote. And again, this is from the, the introduction, and this is from the translator. Finally, Zeus decided to contrive a punishment for mankind from which there would be no escape. And so we have women, end quote. But, but again, it was, not wo- it was not woman in her person, but it was Pandora's jar that is opened up, and that is what is let out, let out and that, that's where we the sickness comes in and ill illness and, and all that kind of stuff, a lot, a lot of these bad things. And so the punishment, I, at first when I was reading it and, and even it kind of hinted in the introduction that the, the punishment was, was, was women. Uh, but it, it's, 
the punishment seems more to be that it's Pandora, the first woman, had this jar. She opened up the jar. That let out all these these evil things. And then uh, she she stopped that jar back up. But that's where we get these evil things. So that's the bridge I wanted to make be- between Theogony and Works and Days because the this discussion of, of women and Pandora and Pandora's jar and all that is is found in both of these works, despite them being so different, one being about the genealogy of the gods and the other being kind of a, a wisdom literature book. All right, so now let's go into works and days. And before I read the paragraph I want to read for, for this section, let me just say that uh, Persas, the name I, I read here is the brother of Hesiod, and he's kind of this wayward brother. He, when they get the uh, their father's inheritance, he takes more than he should. He's this lazy guy, and Hesiod's trying to just kind of prod him into being a a good citizen, a a functioning adult, a worker, and someone who's productive, and that kind of thing. And so that's that's where the the story is presented in that sense of your. Uh, it's it's a. It's almost like a letter to his his brother of like, hey, get get your stuff together here. Uh, here's some some wisdom to, to get you on the right path. So uh, when I say Persis, that's uh, Hesiod's brother. So here we go. But you, Persis, must take in what I say and hearken to right, forgetting force altogether. For this was the rule for men that Cronus's son laid down, whereas fish and beasts and flying birds would eat one another, because right is not among them. To men he gave right, which is much the best in practice. For if a man is willing to say what he knows to be just, to him wide-seeing Zeus gives prosperity. But whoever deliberately lies in his sworn testimony, therein by injuring right, he is blighted past healing. His family remains more obscure thereafter, while the true sworn man's line gains in worth." End quote. So a few things there. Cronus's son is Zeus. And then right, whenever I said the word right, it is capitalized with a capital R and it is a person. It is a, it is, is a, it is a God. So the idea of right is personified here. And so what, what uh, Hesiod is telling his brother Persis is that you've got to stop doing things by force. Uh, There's, there's another statement here where, uh, when lawlessness comes about, let me see, law and decency will be in fists. So when things start going wrong, the law and decency will be in fists. It, it'll be it'll be because of you know, who is who is using their fists to, to to determine what is law and decency. And so Hesiod's telling his brother that that's not the right way. You need to forget that. Um, and in the reason that birds and fish and beasts, they eat each other is because they do not have right with a capital R, but to men, he gave right. And if you don't do right, if you deliberately lie, you injure right. So you, you actually, it's, it's not an idea. You're not, you're not just injuring uh, a, a person or uh, uh uh, yourself, you're injuring an idea of right, and not just even an idea. You're injuring right, the god, the personified being of right. So that I just I loved that that paragraph. I loved that this idea of injuring right, and so that's uh, that's the paragraph I wanted to start off here with works and days. The 
in the introduction, the translator says that uh, Works and Days is a disorderly, r- often rambling text. And, and, and it is, but that, you know, it's, that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's, it's bad. It's, it's, it's very interesting and has a lot of neat things to say. The title refers to works that are to be accomplished on the farm. So in the beginning, remember I said that this is a book for husbandry, uh, uh, farming, and then days, uh, refers to there's, there's a section where there are, there are specific tasks that Hesiod says you should perform on these days so that you should do certain things with farming on these specific days. And so that's where we get the title of works and days. But this book is so much beyond that. The poem, it it expands well beyond that into practical advice for living. And so it's not just the the works you do on the farm. It's not just the days that you do that work, but it, but it's 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 very much a wisdom literature book like Proverbs. Let me read a, a few uh, quotes that I just thought were were excellent and and so much packed into some of these sentences. So here we go. A man fashions ill for himself who fashions ill for another, and the ill design is most ill for the designer. A man fashions ill for himself who fashions ill for another, and the ill design is most ill for the designer. Next up, you should embrace work tasks in their due order. So this is Hesiod speaking to his his brother again. And I I just love that like practical advice. I mean, I some days I get so lost in my to-do list that I can't even function. And I just love that simplicity of you should embrace work tasks in their due order. Just Take the next one and do it. Uh, next section here on, on giving. For if a man gives voluntarily, even a big gift, he is glad at the giving and rejoices in his heart. But if a man takes of his own accord, trusting in shamelessness, even something little that puts a frost on the heart. End quote. That is so, that is so good. So trusting in shamelessness. If... Um, if if the man if a man does not give and he trusts that he will not feel shame for that not giving he puts a frost on his heart so it kind of goes back to that idea of of directions and small small decisions these small decisions impact the direction of your life and so you may think you know not giving is i it, it's okay but to do that you're trusting in the fact that, or the the hope that you will not have shame for not giving. And it also puts you on the wrong path. It puts a frost on your heart. Uh, again, just, you know, some of these sentences are just so rich with, with meaning and, and um, imagery that it puts, it puts in your head. Here's another piece of advice. Do not put off things till tomorrow and the next day. A man of ineffectual labor, a postponer, does not fill his granary. It is application that promotes your cultivation, whereas a postponer of labor is constantly wrestling with blights. End quote. Blights here is capitalized, which means it's a god. So again, you've got this personification of blights, of things going wrong. But if you're not, if you're if you're postponing, if you're if you're lazy, if you're not applying, uh, that's where this God blights will, will come in and, and take things from there. And here's a, a nice one. And this is so funny because it, it 
again, this is, is very common or very similar to a proverb that I actually just came across this morning in, in my reading. So here we go. The tongue's best treasure among men is when it is sparing and its greatest charm is when it goes in measure, end quote. It should be, be better to be quiet. Uh, I'll close out works and days with that. And then next segment here, I'll go into the one thing, my one key takeaway from theogony and works and days. All right, now into the one thing, my one key takeaway from theogony and works and days. I, I know this may seem like a really cheesy thing to do and, uh, that, you know, the goal of reading is not to pull one thing out of a book and then, you know, treat it like this super important thing. And so when I, when I'm doing this, when I'm, when I'm saying the one thing, most of the time, these are the things, this, this is the one thing that I'm still thinking about after having read the book. And the other side of this is that in, in, this reading project, I've found that the best way that I personally remember books is if I try to remember one thing. So I'm not trying to like narrow everything down in the book to one cheesy thing. Like I'm, I'm trying to help myself remember the book. And if I can remember one thing from a book, I will usually be able to remember other things. If I try to remember a bunch of things, I, I will usually not be able to remember any of them. And so that, that's the reason I do this. And, 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 so you know, it's usually the one thing that comes about is is the one thing that I just can't get out of my out of my head. So with that in mind, the one thing that really stuck out about this book is is that idea I mentioned in the last segment of of injuring right that these these gods are things that we think of as things or ideas. But in this book, they're presented as gods. They are they are personified. They're they're deified, I guess, in in the the correct way. But uh, but there's humans as well, and and so they're but they're they're given life. They're not just this abstract idea that is placed over here, and we can talk about it here. They they are living beings. I think of these things as abstract ideas. I don't ever think of the idea of right as a God or a being, but this book personalizes and personifies these things. You don't do right. You're not just injuring yourself or those if, or like, if you, if you don't do right, you're not just injuring yourself or those around you. You're injuring right itself. You are injuring the God, the person of the idea of right. What if we started thinking of wind, desire, memory, dreams, deceit, intimacy, strife, starvation, slaughter, oaths, and lies as being, as beings, as gods, people instead of things. Is that how they were viewed at the, at that time? Is this how the ancient Greeks viewed them? I don't know. I, I, I hope to, to find that answer out. Maybe, maybe one of you knows who's listening and, and you can can share with me if this is actually how they viewed it or if it's kind of part of the mythology and that kind of thing. But but just to take that step back and, and I, I've never thought about it in that way. And all those things I just mentioned, those are presented as gods in this book. Wind, desire, intimacy, strife, slaughter, lies. They're all presented as gods. And this is a book of the genealogy of these gods. So you find out who the parents are 
who made these different gods? What what two parents came together? What two gods came together to make desire or dreams or starvation? And so there's a story in that as well. What what if you travel to another country now in in our time now, and this is how they viewed everything? Do you th- do you think that would affect things? Do you think that you would even notice, or would it ch- like would it change how people lived? These are just questions that I had while while reading and and kind of thinking about this personification of these what I think of as as ideas. And that's why this is the one my one thing for this book. It's an intriguing idea, one that I haven't given much thought. I've always thought of these as ideas or things. I I don't think these are people. I don't think they're they're gods. I don't think the idea of wind is is a god or or lies are a god or starvation is a, is a god, but it's the the intellectual practice of that or the intellectual exercise of just thinking about that is is really fun it's just kind of to to think through the potential ramifications of thinking that way or viewing the world in that way that each of these things uh storms what you know all these different things these 300 things you see in this book what if you started thinking of them as personified gods or as opposed to ideas or things. Again, just a just a fun thing in, in my, my one key takeaway from this book. So to recap, this is the first mention of many of these gods in history in the sense of them being written down. They were discussed. They, they, there was the oral tradition. This is the first time these gods are kind of compiled into this book, into a book. So this really is a source book of sorts. It's not the source books because we, we there, there there's a number of different books from ancient Greece that tell more stories about these these gods or tell you know about of other gods and that sort of thing but this this is one of the earliest works to come out of ancient Greece and th- and these are the gods that are going to show up in the Iliad the Odyssey Ovid's Metamorphoses Herodotus's histories Euripides and in in these other works and these are works that I'm going to be reading coming up this year and, and next year so it's 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 short, very short book, but it's fascinating. Hesiod doesn't have the literary flow of Homer, but it's a delightful read nonetheless. There is disturbing violence, origin stories for emotions, abstractions, and nature. So if you're going to dive into the Iliad and the Odyssey, I I strongly suggest you start with this. Time-wise, time it might not fit chronologically in, in most of the great books lists out there, but it's closer, potentially even before Homer. But more than chronologically, the, the content is such that it'd be helpful to read this before you dig into Homer, because, because this, is the, this is the origin of the gods that you're reading about in Homer. And finally, this book was probably written 2,700 years ago, but you will recognize many of the gods' names in this book. We are inundated with them. This is an important book from that sense, a, a shoe-in for the great books list, and a great place to start if you plan to read any other books from ancient Greece, or if you plan to see any fantasy movies in our own time coming up. This is a great just source book for to find out who, who these gods are. You're going to see these names all the time. You might as well get the story from, from the source. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. I, uh, I miss a lot when I read. 
and I know I might have covered 1% of what is in this book. If something stuck out to you when you read this book, I would love to hear that. I'd love to, to, to get an email from you and to, to hear something I missed, to, something, to hear about something that stuck out to you. Um, you can email me at eric, E-R-I-K, at booksoftitans.com. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And the website is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. So I will be back in a week or two, and I will be discussing the next book on my list. And until then, keep reading, keep listening, and I'm out.